Hi guys, I hope this uh, finds you well. And as you can tell from my voice, I am not. Uh, that respiratory bug that I've been messing with for the last months, uh, it's gotten worse. It won't go away. I uh, went to the doctor yesterday, got some new meds, and um, hopefully that and rest, uh, I can kick this thing. And uh, hopefully this uh, will clear up enough that I can be a part of the St. Patrick's Day celebrations down at the pub. Mostly what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks is sleeping and uh, watching a little TV. I've done some writing, but I just didn't feel like doing too much because I've had a a consistent sinus headache the entire time, and anybody that's ever dealt with that, you know how ugh, terrible that can be. But anyway... Uh, hopefully this will all clear up by Sunday and I can be a part of the St. Patrick's celebrations down at the pub. So instead of doing a regular show, I thought I would give you a, uh, from our podcast history, the story of alcohol, I thought I would give you a uh, replay of a show that I did in March of 2017. It's basically a short history history of St. Patrick's Day, who St. Patrick was, how the holiday has evolved over the years. And uh, anyway, I'll let you listen to that and then I'll talk to you on the other end. I was raised on black and tans, well Ronnie Drew and Van the Man. I go off to Mass on Sunday. And then it's back to the pub on Monday. I got a sister Megan with the Celtic cross tattoo. I'll tell you a few stories, and every one of them is true. My mother's brothers, sisters, cousins, aunties, uncles, Barney's father's mother had a cousin from Killarney. I tell you, this has been a week already. <laughs> Uh, St. Patrick's Week, Murphy's Law is well in place, and I need something to drink. Well, here we are. Sometime in the late 4th or early 5th century CE, there lived a young man named Maywin Sukkot, somewhere in the western part of the Roman province of Britannia, probably in what is today Wales, but it might have been Cornwall or Cumbria, and some claimants have even speculated that he lived in the southwestern part of Scotland, but this is doubtful since there was no Roman governmental presence in Scotland after the construction of Hadrian's Wall more than two centuries earlier. As the son of a Roman government official and the grandson of a Christian high priest, Maywin grew up in relative luxury, perhaps not as nice as it would have been in other parts of the Roman world, considering that the province of Britannia was on the furthest edge of the greatest European empire known to that date. But still, he would have had a very good life, which he even acknowledged in his own writings. There would have been a villa, there were slaves and servants in the household, there was probably even a townhouse in the provincial capital of Londinium. He had the finest of clothing, imported foods and wines from the Mediterranean, the best that a well-to-do Roman citizen of Britannia could expect at that time. 
But Maywin, by his own admission, was vain. He turned away from his family's teachings. He rejected God, much to the displeasure of his father and mother. He lived day to day for pleasure, which is typical for the son of a well-to-do family. And we often see it even in today's world. But one night, his life was turned upside down when a pagan raiding party hit the village, robbing and looting anything that wasn't nailed down, stealing livestock, kidnapping servants and slaves. And they even took another person. They abducted Maywin himself. The raiders took him across the sea to the foot of the Sleemish Mountains, where he was sold as a slave to a pagan chieftain, and he was put to work as a shepherd, following the livestock into the mountains in the summer, and then bringing the sheep and cattle back down into the valleys in the winter. And in his solitude among the animals, he reached out for something that he had previously turned his back upon. He was alone, a captive in a strange land with strange customs and a language that he didn't understand. And the only thing that he had was what he had been taught as a child, and that was his Christian faith. And he began to pray to God. At first, the conversation was one-sided, you know, why, oh me, Lord? And he received no answers to his prayers, but he continued to pray. And then one night, after six years of captivity, an angel came to him and told him to walk, walk south, 200 miles to the sea. And there he would find a fishing boat that would take him back to his home. His journey had travails a walk of at least a week through hostile country, storms on the waters across the sea, a journey through a wilderness without food or shelter, but he did return, and his parents rejoiced to see their son, and they begged him never to leave again. But after he was at home for a while, another angel told him to go to his uncle, the Bishop Saint Martin of Tours in France. And St. Martin sent his nephew, Maywin, on to study for the priesthood under St. Germain, the Bishop of Auxerre. And after a few years during his study, he received another message from God. Go back to those who kept you captive. Teach them the gospel of Christ. Convert them to Christianity. And subsequently, Maywin was ordained, and he was given a new name, and he set off with an entourage of servants across the Celtic Sea and into the Irish Sea and back to the land of his captivity. And that land was Ireland, and he went there with his new name, Patricus. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. What most Americans know about St. Patrick is this. He drove all of the snakes out of Ireland. He converted all of the pagans to Christianity in his lifetime. He climbed to the top of Crowpatrick in County Mayo, and he fasted for 40 days asking God to turn the hearts of the pagans. St. Patrick always wore green. He was from Ireland, and he used the three leaves of the shamrock to explain the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And no, he wasn't from Ireland, he was from Britain. And there were no snakes in Ireland. When 
There was a land bridge between Europe and Ireland. It was too cold for the snakes to cross the tundra, and then they couldn't swim across the Irish Sea. The legend of driving the snakes out is a reference to giving out paganism and sin from Ireland, as in the snake that was in the Garden of Eden. And while St. Patrick is best known of all of the missionaries who came to Ireland, he wasn't the first. That distinction belonged to a man named Palladius. And Patrick wasn't the last, as it took almost two centuries before Christianity had spread completely over the island. And that version of Christianity, which Patrick engendered, was very Celtic, as it adopted many of the old pagan beliefs. See, when Patrick returned to Ireland, he had an edge. He spoke the language, and he was able to communicate with the Celts in a manner which no one before him had been able to do. And he understood them well. He knew their beliefs, their, their superstitions, their legends. And he taught this to his disciples after him. And they also understood the Celts as well. And instead of making or, or trying to push the Celts into abandoning their beliefs, Patrick and his followers incorporated them into Christianity the holy places where they buried their dead, the myths, their legends. And one of the most the remarkable things about Ireland and its conversion to Christianity is this. There were never any early Christian martyrs. This is almost unheard of across the rest of Europe and the world. The story about him climbing Crow Patrick, the mountain in County Mayo, who cares if it's true or not? It's, it's an association story, like Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. And there's no documented evidence of the shamrock being used by Patrick to represent the Trinity, not in his writings or in those of his biographer, who was writing about Patrick 200 years after his death. But his biographer does tell us that his color was blue. He didn't wear green. But it's not really who Patrick was. He may have been more than one person. Some historians think so. What's important is what he means, not just to Ireland, but to the millions of Irish descendants who live throughout the world. Friday this week is March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, and millions of people across the globe will come together. They'll wear their Irish green, They'll sing their Irish songs. They'll drink Guinness and Irish whiskey. Speaking of that, I'm having a sip now. They'll celebrate the life of a man that many probably know very little about. And over the years, especially in the United States, there have been traditions piled onto this holiday that have little or nothing to do with Ireland or St. Patrick. Marching bands, parades, heavy drinking, just to name a few. And the truth of the matter is that even within Ireland, St. Patrick's Day was celebrated and observed in very different ways at different times throughout the nation's history. The cult of St. Patrick had its earliest appearance 200 years after his death, around 688 in County Armagh in Northern Ireland, not far from Downpatrick, where it's claimed that he is buried. It was there that the local church federation, it wasn't yet called a diocese, commissioned a scribe named Murek to write a complete biography of St. Patrick based upon the stories and legends that had been told over 
the previous 200 years. This biography, it's a mix of murky facts and legends and St. Patrick's own written confession, what we would call a testament, these two sources are really the only works that we have regarding the life of Ireland's most famous apostle. It was through Murick's writing that Patrick's fame spread throughout Ireland in just a matter of a few years. Now, while he was at this time called a saint by the Catholic Church in Ireland, this was long before the Vatican ever instituted the practice of canonization, and it would be many, many years before Rome officially recognized Patrick as a saint. And his sainthood among the Irish is different from other traditions for a number of reasons. Through legend and tradition, Patrick was, and in some circles still is, uniquely considered the converter of all the Irish, the banisher of all evil from the land, and the ultimate judge of all the Irish. He's also considered as the ultimate intercessor on behalf of them in their reaching of heaven, only to be superseded by Mary and God, the Father and the Son. And among the cult of St. Patrick, then and now, the common greeting in Irish is, Dear Schmir Dweet es Patrick, God, Mary, and Patrick be with you. While the cult of St. Patrick has been looked at in depth by historians and theologians for many centuries, the origins of St. Patrick's Day as an observable holiday have been, for the most part, ignored. There's one work, though, that dives into it, and that is by the historians Michael Cronin and Daryl Adair in their work, The Wearing of the Green, The History of St. Patrick's Day. In that work, Cronin and Adair look at the documented incidents when March 17th was observed both as a religious occasion and a secular celebration. The first thing that they address is the date. Why March 17th? Well, no one really knows. It has always been stated that March 17th was the day of Patrick's death, and that happened sometime between the years of 461 and 493. But there is no documentation to this fact, only tradition. Now, it was first documented as a saint's day in the legal calendar of Ireland in 1607, so it can be assumed that it had been observed prior to this as a religious occasion. But why this came about as an official holiday is kind of surreptitious. See, there was a war going on between the Catholic Church, that is the old Celtic Christian Church, as well as the Catholic Church in Rome, and the Anglican Church of Ireland, over which religion had the best claim for Patrick being their patron saint. Now, without getting into this issue very deeply, the nuts and bolts are this. The Anglican faith split from Catholicism in 536, and unlike Lutheranism or Calvinism, the High Anglican Church pretty much retained the same rituals as their predecessors in the Catholic faith. Of course, this changed as time went on in the 17th century, especially in the mid-1600s. The Anglican faith kind of took a turn towards the right and it began a very radical interpretation of their faith, and they began to reject what they considered idolatry, that which included the worship of saints. But I'm getting ahead of the story here a little bit. So... Back to the legal calendar of Ireland in 1607, which was set up by Dublin Castle and the Irish Parliament, 
both of which were controlled by members of the Anglican Church of Ireland. And to make a more legitimate claim to Patrick as their quote-unquote saint, they put his feast day on March 17th on the calendar. The Catholic Church of Rome wasn't far behind in claiming Patrick as one of their saints because it strengthened their bonds with those in Ireland who still retained the Catholic sacraments and Rome's claim to the Celtic Church. In 1631, Pope Urban VIII declared March 17th to be the official feast day of the Catholic faith for St. Patrick. So the two religions bickered back and forth through a good portion of the 17th century over who really got to have Patrick as their own. But the way the two sides celebrated at this time was very, very different. The Protestant Church of Ireland saw St. Patrick's Day as more of a celebration of civic pride in the country of Ireland, whereas the Catholic faith in Ireland saw the date as a high holy day of obligation with mandatory mass attendance. For example, a typical Catholic in the 1600s would have been expected to attend a morning mass, and then they would have fasted throughout the day until sundown before sharing a simple meal among family with very little merriment. The Protestant observances, however, were quite different. First, they were usually only celebrated by the Patrician Society of Ireland, that is, the more wealthy of the old Irish stock that had converted from Catholicism to the Anglican faith. There would be a morning church service, but after that, the rest of the day would be one of merrymaking. There would be fairs with feasting, drinking, dancing, and that wasn't controversial in the least. As a matter of fact, in the first half of the 1600s, the Anglican Archbishop of Armagh sanctioned such fairs and celebrations. And within the Protestant church in Ireland, this type of celebration continued into the next century. All through this same time, after King James I had ascended the throne of England, there had been a concerted effort by Parliament and the Crown to stamp out Catholicism in Ireland. Unlike other countries in Europe during and after the Reformation period, in Ireland, the reforming religions had a big drawback. Their clerics did not speak the vernacular language, that is, Gaelic-Irish which was the first language of 90% of the population. And this was spoken by every Catholic priest on the island. When Catholicism went underground after the implementation of the penal laws against the Catholics after 1691, that is what we talked about last week during the reign of William and Mary, the Catholics retained their solemn observation of St. Patrick's Day, that is, going to Mass, fasting, and then having a light repose of dinner after the sun had set. While with the Anglicans, the day grew more and more into a public celebration of the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland with parades and feasting and fairs, which, of course, excluded the Catholics living in Ireland. A slight change occurred in 1695. The Irish Parliament passed a law no longer recognizing St. Patrick's Day, as well as almost every other saint's feast day, as officially observed legal holidays in Ireland. But this did not stop the Protestant Anglo-Irish gentry 
from observing March 17th as a secular holiday for another century. And it was generally celebrated with genteel balls and feast, mostly centering around Dublin City, where the largest majority of the wealthy Irish lived. It wasn't until after the United Irishmen's uprising in 1798, which was a coalition of both Protestant and Catholic citizens in Ireland who wanted to set up a democratic republic modeled on the young United States. Now, with help from France, the United Irishmen rebelled against Britain, but, as so often happened with most Irish rebellions, they lost. They lost badly. And their leaders were rounded up, either hung or executed, or worse, executed as traitors. So after the United Irishmen's uprising, the celebration of St. Patrick's Day was seen as a display of Irish patriotism and was more or less quieted down significantly as anyone who was seen celebrating would immediately have had their loyalty to the crown would be questioned. Now, any observance of the holiday thereafter by the Protestants in Ireland was always a closed event without much public notoriety, and the Catholic celebrations they weren't, weren't really celebrations, they were observances. They were hidden firmly underground. Now, I know that some of this sounds strange to us here in the United States. We generally equate the celebration of St. Patrick's Day with its parties and drinkings and such with Irish Catholicism, especially in major cities like Boston, New York, and Chicago. So, what happened? What caused this shift from a Protestant Anglo-Irish celebration in Ireland to an Irish Catholic celebration in the United States? And the answer to this is twofold. Religious freedom and the Irish diaspora. The diaspora is the migration of the Irish leaving Ireland and settling throughout the rest of the world. Beginning in 1700 and continuing into the early 20th century, it is estimated that between 9 and 10 million people left Ireland and settled around the globe. And while most of the Irish left Ireland looking for economic opportunities elsewhere in the British Empire, it was a rather large minority who were also interested in being able to practice their faith openly. And they first found that in North America. Oral tradition has it that at the end of the French and Indian War, a regiment of Irish soldiers serving in the British Army, stationed in New York City, held the first St. Patrick's Day parade in that city on March 17th in the year of 1762. And this is an accepted fact all over the internet. Remember what I've told you about what you read on the internet. Any site that you go visiting regarding St. Patrick's Day celebrations will tell you this was the first St. Patrick's Day parade ever in the whole world. But it's an alternative fact, folks. It probably never happened, as there is no documentation of this event occurring. Now, and, and it makes sense. Many of the Irish soldiers within the British Army were raised Catholic. However, since it was prohibited for a Catholic to be in the army before the 1770s, 
During the American Revolution, the Brits uh, changed the rules. They were needing cannon fodder, and they were having a hard time getting enlistees. So they opened up their ranks to Catholics, but that's another story. But prior to that, if you joined, you would have had to renounce your religion and take an oath of loyalty to the British crown. Now, a lot of people today would say, well, why would you do that? Why would you ever renounce your religion? I'll tell you a very simple re reason. You're starving. There wasn't a lot of work for these young men, these young Irish men growing up in Ireland. And to marry Brown Bess, that is the musket of the British Army, was a viable option for them for survival. The Irish were the largest group outside of the English to be in the British Army all through the British colonial period from the 18th through the early 20th century. It was simply a survival mechanism for these young men. Excuse me. Oh, man, it's good. Now, Cronin and Adair, in their book, they documented that a group of Irish Protestant businessmen in New York in 1762 did have a St. Patrick's Day dinner that year on March 17th. And this appears to be the first commemoration of that day in New York City. But 25 years earlier, in 1737, in Boston, the Anglo-Irish of that town formed the Charitable Irish Society of Boston, with its rules stating that any member of this exclusively male club had to be Protestant and an inhabitant of Boston. The club was chartered on March 17th of that year, becoming the first recorded observance of the holiday in British colonial America. However, the club, for whatever reason, did not again celebrate St. Patrick's Day until 1794, 12 years after the end of the American Revolution. The first documented St. Patrick's Day parade in colonial America happened on March 17th of 1766 with a fife and drum military procession through the streets of New York apparently led by Anglo-Irish officers within an Irish regiment of the British Army. And the first St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston wasn't even an observance of St. Patrick's Day. On March 17th of 1776, when the United States Continental Army General John Sullivan, the son of Irish immigrants from County Cork, led General George Washington and his army into Boston on the day following the British evacuation of that city. And while the purpose of the day was not to celebrate the Irish saint, given the circumstances, the citizens of Boston have ever since proudly proclaimed that they held the first St. Patrick's Day parade in the United States, even though the United States didn't come into being for another three and a half months on July 4th, but who's quibbling close enough, right? Okay. But it was in the waning years of the American Revolution when St. Patrick's Day began to emerge as the quintessential Irish-American celebration that we know today. In 1780, the state of Massachusetts amended their constitution to allow Catholics liberty of public worship as well as the right of public citizenship, including the right to vote and hold public office. 
In Ireland at the same time, by the contrast, Catholics still faced restrictions on worship, suffrage, and public representation. With the news of Massachusetts' new law reaching Ireland, an uptick in Catholic immigration began coming into the Bay State between 1780 and 1825. That, that, those years saw more Irish Catholics come into the United States than in any other state. The Charitable Irish Society of Boston, remember these guys back in 1737 that were Protestants only? Well, with this new influx of Catholic immigration from the southern counties of Ireland, they amended their rules to allow Catholics to join. And on March 17th of 1837, the now Catholic-dominated membership of the society celebrated its centennial anniversary with a public procession, an observance of mass, and a formal dinner. And since St. Patrick's Day of that year was on a Friday, and it was in the midst of Lent, the Charitable Irish Society approached the Catholic Bishop of Boston and asked for a dispensation from Lenten dietary restrictions so they might celebrate the occasion fully outside of the usual observances. And the, the bishop had no problem granting permission as long as the members would give a small donation to the Catholic charity of their choice. The parade held that day, which also included membership of the Young Catholic Friends, passed in procession before the mayor of Boston, the governor of Massachusetts, the city marshal, all of the state office holders, as well as the members of the state house. Now this would be the first St. Patrick's Day celebration in the United States that we today would have recognized as a model for our contemporary celebrations with the wearing of the shamrocks and greenery, the singing of songs, drinking and feasting. It signaled the arrival of the Irish Catholics in the United States. But at this same time, it wasn't necessarily the case for the rest of the country. Irish Catholics wanting to fit into their new home, they were worried about anti-papist prejudice, and they kept their heads down. They concentrated on making the 4th of July their holiday of celebration. But something happened. After 1827, the British Empire they relaxed their restriction on the numbers of immigrants leaving Ireland for the United States. And by 1835, 30,000 Irish were arriving in New York every year, and their numbers grew, and so did the outward displays of Irish pride. And with that came St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Rather than formal events that were organized by the Protestant elites, which had happened in the late 18th century, these St. Patrick's Day celebrations were public marches for members of the lower classes. Organizations such as the newly formed Hibernians, they brought about an openness to the celebrations and to the public. And by the early 1840s, wherever there was an Irish Catholic population in the United States, including the cities of Philadelphia, Savannah, Georgia, New Orleans, as well as many smaller cities throughout the northeastern part of the United States, there was some sort of St. Patrick's Day observance. But what was yet to come would make everything before it appear trivial. In 1845, in pockets of Ireland, especially in the west of the country, a fungus attacked the potato crop, with losses reported at 50% of the crop that year. 
The next year, 1846, the fungus had nearly spread throughout the country with losses of more than 75% of the potato crop. And the year after that, the Black 47, 1847, there was no potato crop in Ireland at all. So you think, so what? No potatoes? Well, eat other things. But for nearly 90% of the population, mostly Catholic, mostly subsistence farmers, with the average family being of about eight people, living on a plot of land of an acre in size, maybe two acres at the most, the one thing that those folks ate every day at every meal was potatoes. Potatoes could grow anywhere, and even on the most marginal of lands. The English gentry in Ireland, beginning in the early 1600s, they encouraged their labor force, their Catholic laborers, to adopt the potato as the staple in their diet. And between 1600 and 1840, the population in Ireland more than doubled, going from estimated 4 million people at the beginning of the 17th century to 8.5 million people by the census in 1840. And as I stated earlier, 90% of those people relied upon the potato for their sustenance. Potatoes, along with some dairy from the family cow, cheese and milk and such, as well as eggs from the chickens, and along with seasonal greens and vegetables from your small garden, this provided a nutritious diet for these people. But the failure of the potato crop, along with the structural problems involved with the Irish agricultural system, with, that is with the landlord-tenant relationship that led to disaster. The crop failure continued until 1852 when it began to rebound. And by the time that the fungus had run its course, the population of Ireland had dropped to less than three million people. Five out of every eight people that were there in 1845 were gone within seven years. One and a half to two million of these people, they died from starvation and starvation-related diseases. Another two and a half million left the country, with the vast majority of these going to the United States. Another million are simply unaccounted for. Entire church parishes in the west of Ireland simply disappeared. Cities became overcrowded with refugees from the rural areas looking for something to eat, and very little was to come their way from the British government. Lord Charles Trevelyan, the British superintendent in charge of the Irish famine relief effort, wrote to one of his peers in Parliament, The judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson. That calamity must not be too much mitigated. The real evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of this famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the Irish people. This was the guy that was in charge of, the, of, of getting food to the starving people in Ireland. Let that sink in for a moment. And this really wasn't a famine. The Irish phase in the Irish language and Gaelic for the event is a better description. Angortamor, the great hunger. 
During the years that the potato crop failed, other agricultural crops and livestock output in Ireland were exceptional. But rather than processing this food and keeping it in Ireland and delivering it to the hungry, it was sold on the open world markets in Europe and elsewhere to the benefit of the Anglo-Irish landowners and the British government. The devastation was such that even today the population of the entire island of Ireland is not rebounded, with a current population of just under 6 million, both North and the Republic. I wish I had more time to tell you about this human tragedy, and if you ever join me on one of my tours of Ireland, I spend the good portion of one day talking about Angortamor. But in regards to St. Patrick's Day, this tragedy, nothing before it and nothing since, had a greater impact on the holiday in America than the immigrants that came to this country in its wake. St. Patrick's Day celebrations in the United States during the 1840s and 50s, they revolved around relief efforts and raising funds for those who were in Ireland and starving. As more immigrant refugees arrived in America, the more the animosity grew within the Irish-American community toward Great Britain. And over the next century and a half following the potato famine, the Irish-Americans in the United States contributed more money and arms to the Irish independence movement than anyone else. And while these nationalist fundraising efforts were going on, they particularly focused around St. Patrick's Day celebrations. In 1988, for example, while I was in grad school, I went to Boston to visit a friend uh, over St. Patrick's Day. It was during spring break, and uh, she was going to Boston College. And one evening, she said, "You got to go. We got to go down to see Southie, South Boston." And we went down to South Boston and went into the pubs down there. Now, this was at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland, and every pub that we went into that night, there was somebody walking through the room, passing a hat for money to go to the Irish Relief. And although it was going to the IRA, everybody knew where it was going, the, Ir the Irish Republican Army. Now, since 1998 and the signing of the Good Friday Peace Accords and because of the works of men like Jerry Adams on the uh, Republican side, that is Sinn Féin, and John Hume on the side of the Unionist, these good men have brought the end of violence in politics in Northern Ireland. And today, Belfast is a tourist destination and no longer a war zone. In Ireland, St. Patrick's Day up until the mid-1970s was a solemn day of holy obligation. If there were parades, they were patriotic events, more like our Veterans Day and Memorial Day parades that we have here in the United States. The pubs weren't even open on St. Patrick's Day in Ireland until 30 years ago. But the Irish, they're very clever fellas. They saw what was going on over here across the Atlantic, and beginning in the 1990s, Board Falcha, that is the Irish Tourism Board, they began to encourage the major cities, starting with Dublin, but Cork and Galway soon followed suit, to start celebrations and parades. And now one of Ireland's biggest influx of American visitors happens every year on the week around St. Patrick's Day. And so the American holiday 
the, Ameri the Irish American holiday of St. Patrick's Day has gone home. And now Ireland celebrates it in the same way that we do, with plenty of Guinness, Jameson, John Powers, Tullamore Dew, lots of green, lots of beads, and lots of parades and having a good time. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're celebrating our heritage. Now, there's two things that we have here in the United States that some people think, well, it just wouldn't be St. Patrick's Day without them. And neither one of these things came from Ireland. One of them being corned beef and cabbage, and the other thing being green beer. Corned beef and cabbage is a uniquely Irish-American dish. Yes, I grew up eating it every St. Patrick's Day, as did most of you who are from Irish-American families. We looked forward to it, loved it. And I thought, well, this is what our forefathers ate back in Ireland. But the traditional Irish feast meal before the Irish came to America was bacon and cabbage. And this is not belly bacon. That is our streaky breakfast bacon that we have. Irish bacon is actually, it's cured pork loin, similar to what we call Canadian bacon, but it's different. And in Ireland, it was completely acceptable to have any pork roast as part of your feast dinner. Pork was one of the more common meats. It was cheaper than beef and it was more special than a chicken. Now, these pork roasts, they would be cured or uncured. They would be boiled in water, and then the cabbage and potatoes would be boiled in that pork broth to give them the flavor. So, when the Irish immigrants began to arrive in the major cities of North America, they ended up living in the same neighborhoods as other immigrant groups, and usually the people running the butcher shops and delicatessens in those neighborhoods were Jewish. So, of course, pork isn't kosher. You're not going to find it in a Jewish deli or a butcher shop. But pastrami and corned beef, which is the same thing. Pastrami is just cured corned beef. All right. They're there. And so the Irish immigrants were completely happy to substitute beef for pork for their St. Patrick's Day dinner in America. Now, in Ireland, the only place you'll see corned beef on the menu is a place that has it just for the American tourist, okay? Here's a piece of advice. Don't eat it. It won't be as good as what we have here in the States because they don't know how to make corned beef over there. They have a thing they make around Christmas called spiced beef, but it's different. It's not the same. So don't eat the corned beef. It's not as good. Order the bacon and cabbage. Get the parsley sauce. That's the way to go. With the new potatoes. And they'll probably also bring you out a side of french fries, too. And maybe some mash. You might get mashed potatoes. I've eaten a lot of meals in Ireland where I've gotten three kinds of potatoes. See, they didn't have potatoes for about 10 years back in the mid-1800s. So they're going to make sure you get plenty of them now. Anyway, expand your horizons. Have the bacon and cabbage with potatoes. It's much better. Also, the cabbage is different in Ireland. In Ireland, they have Savoy cabbage, which is much greener. And I think it's tastier than our white and greenhead cabbage, but the difference is nominal. It's still, it's good. And green beer. Okay, green beer. Green beer. There's absolutely nothing remotely associated between or having anything to do with Ireland and green beer. You know where green beer came from? Well, it wasn't an Irish pub. It was a New York 
social club in 1912. It was a German social club, the Schnerer Club, S-C-H-N-E-R-E-R, a German social club where a physician, one Dr. Curtin on St. Patrick's Day, he put some green food coloring. It was probably carcinogenic. He put it into a keg of beer and they all laughed. You see, they were all having a laugh on the Irish, or as my friend Greta, who's from County Wicklow, might say, they were taking a on the Irish. And then it just spread. Every year, I get people coming in. Where's the green beer? Get the out of here. Get the out of my pub. We, we got amber beer. We got brown beer. We got red beer. We got black beer. It's not really black, but don't ask for any green beer. Go up to those nine Irish bars up the street. You can have all the green beer you want up there. Get the out of here. Now, I would tell you there's no green beer in Ireland, but that isn't exactly true. At the Banker's Lounge in Dublin, a bar that I frequent quite often when I'm over there, it's at the corner of Dame Lane and Trinity Street, right across from Keogh's Cafe. They have green beer. I was there uh, a few years back, and I was sitting at the bar and looking on the back bar, and there's a sign, green beer available, five euro, 50 pence, ask for a pint. So I turned to the barman, and I what's with the green beer, I asked him. And the fellow, his name's Ado. I've gotten to know him pretty well uh, since then. He says, every year during St. Patrick's Day, these Yanks come in here, and they're asking me, have you got any green beer? I was like, I ain't got no green beer. So every year they keep coming in. So finally I got to talking with a friend of mine who runs a bar over in Boston in the States, and he tells me, he tells me how to make this green beer, so I do it. So every year at St. Petty's, I green up a keg, maybe another if need be. If I run out of that one, I do another one. And there, there's always some green beer left after St. Patrick's and all the Americans have gone back home. So I put up the sign and I sell it to any of the f***ing yanks that come in here until it's gone. <laughs> they pay five and a half quid for it now. I said to him, I said, what kind of beer do you use? And he says to me, does it really matter? I guess not. Do they think it's an Irish thing? I asked him. What do I care? They're buying, I'm selling. <laughs> I had to agree with him. If they're f***ing stupid enough to pay five and a half quid for a pint of lager that's got green food coloring in it, eh, why not sell it to them? But I'll never do it. I'll never sell green beer at Patty Malone's, ever. And another thing, while we're talking about drinking and American misconceptions, there's no such thing as Protestant whiskey and Catholic whiskey. Get that out of your f***ing heads. Now, if you go into the Republic of Ireland, you'll see a bottle of Bushmills on the back bar, which is made in Northern Ireland. You'll see it in every pub. And you'll see a bottle of Jameson and Powers, which are made in the Republic. You'll see that in every pub in the North. See, it's only Americans that have this hang-up. And it goes back to the days of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Nobody in Ireland has this hang-up over where their whiskey comes from, as long as it's from Ireland. So get over it. Those days are gone. We have peace in our lifetime. There is peace in Northern Ireland. And another thing, if you listened to last week's episode, you'll remember that when all of these breweries and distilleries in Ireland were established, this is back during the penal law periods of the 17 and 1800s, Catholics couldn't get a license to manufacture so, in theory, Guinness, Jameson, Powers, O'Flaherty's, Tullamore Dew, Beamish, Murphy's, these are all Protestant companies to begin with. So if you're going to exclude one 
thing on that basis, oh, it's a Protestant whiskey, then don't drink any of it. Just f*** off. So, sorry. I had to get that off my chest. I, I, 17 years I've been hearing this. Shinola. Today, for us here in America, St. Patrick's Day is a joyous holiday. It's celebrated by the Irish and non-Irish alike, and we're fine with that. The non-Irish, that's fine. With us that are Irish Americans, that is 33 million of us strong here in the United States. We are the children of the diaspora. St. Patrick's Day is for us a renewal of who we are and where we came from. Every major city in America, Australia, and Britain that has any significant Irish immigration population, and even some that don't, they have a St. Patrick's Day parade and celebration. It's our day. I heard this many, many years ago, and, and, and I think this kind of sums up what it, what's so special about St. Patrick's Day for Irish Americans. And it goes back to the famine. A million died, a million cried, and a million came to America. Given everything that we've endured as a people, Irish and Irish Americans, the luck of the Irish is we're still here. So I leave you tonight with Erna Gobra, Yishmir Duit, Agas Padrig, Agas Benakte Nafela Padrig. Ireland forever. God, Mary, and Patrick be with you, and a blessed St. Patrick's Day to you all. History Episode 17 was written and produced by me, Alan Tapman, the technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. All right, there you are, guys. Thanks for uh, listening. I hope you enjoyed that, and I'm sorry again. I, I hope that I have a new show out next week, but I really don't know. I don't know if this is going to clear up enough that I'm going to feel like... Uh, putting uh, the effort into producing an entire show. But uh, stick right here. You'll know when I am. Uh, and uh, I hope that you have a great St. Patrick's Day, and maybe I'll see you down there, depending on circumstances. Uh, but if not, uh, I'll be back here on the podcast at some point in the next couple of week or two. And uh, so until then, oh, one more thing. Uh, at the beginning of the show, Gaelic Storms, I Was Raised on Black and Tans. I'm going to take you out with that song this week. It's, uh, it's, it's poking a little fun at Irish Americans, but I think it's, uh, it's funny. So that's all for now, and so long for just a while. I can't say that fast. <laughs> oh, no. I was raised on black and tans Well, Ronnie Drew and Van the Man I go off to mass on Sunday And then it's back to the pub on Monday I got a sister Megan with the Celtic cross tattoo I'll tell you a few stories and every one of them is true And his mates, they try to make it to the States. His great uncle, he was a failure, he got deported.
Irish neighborhood. I've never been to Ireland, but I know it's in my blood. 